0: and your response is going to uh, equal the outcome what the outcome is going to be what your response is and you can be negative you can be positive you can work harder you know you choose how you want to respond and you know like like i told my guys today it's like every day you do something you know you, you choose you show up how you want to show up
1: welcome to holding court presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association join hosts Adam Hall and Walt Serrato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in Ohio high school basketball and beyond. This show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get to it.
2: Welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. It's Adam Hall here with my co-host Walt Serrato and tonight we are excited to be joined by the head coach Of the Ohio University Bobcats, Coach Jeff Bowles. Coach Bowles, thank you for coming on tonight, and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast.
0: I appreciate you guys
3: having me. Excited to be here, Coach. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, We're recording this towards the beginning of September. Uh, Was your birthday yesterday? Is is a happy belated birthday, Ohio? Yesterday, I woke up a little achy. Congratulations! Congratulations! Fifty more ahead of you. but we'll be releasing this towards the end of September. And and as we get towards the end of September, you're gearing up for your first official practice of the year, entering season four on the sidelines at OU. Uh, what excites you the most about your team in this upcoming season?
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you look at our first three years, you know, our, our trajectory was going, you know, the way we thought it was going to. And, you know, year two, we went to the NCAA tournament, beat Virginia. You know, they were the ACC champs that year. And um, you know, lost to Creighton in the second round. And last year, we won 25 games. You know, had you know a really good team coming back, and you know we, we got hit by the transfer portal like a lot of schools uh, have have done. Lost our uh, two best players, two first team all league guys. So we we kind of really had to reinvent ourselves a little bit, and and uh, we brought seven new scholarship kids in, two walk ons. So we had nine total new players. And then we have six returners and out of those six, you know, maybe three of them didn't play a whole lot last year. So, you know, we have a lot of inexperience, uh, a lot of new people. So there's been a lot of teaching, a lot of coaching, uh, you know, a lot of question marks. And, uh, you know, it's kind of exciting, kind of reinvigorated me. And, you know, we were able to go to Spain this summer, which really helped with practices. And, you know, we have three games on tape that we've really used for our fall workouts. Uh, So I I think there's just a lot of question marks. And, you know, total coach speak, we're going to go day by day and, And uh, this reminds me a lot of my first year. You know, we lost a lot of guys, got rid of a few guys, and our leading returning scorers uh, averaged eight and seven points a game. And uh, we really didn't know what we had. And, you know, my mindset going into that year was, you know, really a growth mindset just to go day by day, game by game, and, you know, not really worry about results early, but why did we lose? Why did we win? You know, what do we need to work on and really prepare for March? You know, we were playing our best basketball in March Getting ready to play Akron at twelve noon in the uh, MAC tournament up in uh, you know Cleveland, and next thing you know, they're calling us off the floor, and that's when kind of the pandemic and the world shut down. So coming
3: off that twenty five one season, I know you guys started off, I believe nineteen and three, if I remember correctly, um, and as you integrate those new players, and you said, kind of feels like your first season all over again. What are some? Some focus areas for you and the conversations you're having with your players as we gear up to start the season.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest thing, you know, with three transfers and and a lot of new guys, you know, just trying to get everyone on the same page from a chemistry standpoint. And, you know, going to Spain really helped that off the court, you know, wise guys having to hang out together and and be around each other, um, you know, in a different country. And I think on the court, it was really good to kind of see what we have um, in, in a pro setting. And, you know, when we got back, we we did individual meetings and really talked about roles and being selfless and, and uh, you know, sacrificing something and understanding that, you know, we need to, you know, all, you know, be great at our roles and just trying to get everyone on the same page from that standpoint and, and you know, really just have the buy-in, the trust, you know, trusting each other. Because when you bring in so many new guys, you know, everyone's trying to, you know, mark their territory per se, just trying to, you know, figure things out and show what they can and can't do. But at the end of the day, all that matters is, you know, how university winning. And, uh, you know, so we've really talked about being selfless and and buying into your role. Yeah. So
2: coach um, I want to continue on that, that whole idea of identifying roles for your players. Um, You know, I would imagine that's probably one of the more challenging parts of your job because the players you're bringing in are all the best players on their high school teams. Um, just like when you went to OU, uh, you were the best player on your high school team at Sandy Valley. But when you got to OU, um, you probably weren't the best player at OU because you played alongside some really, really good players. And Gary Trent, who was named the MAC Player of the Year three years in a row, uh, Gino Ford, Mr. Basketball uh, in the state of Ohio – and so my guess is Coach Hunter probably had you more in a supporting role than, than a lead role. Um, and, and most of your players that you get come in are going to be in those supporting roles as opposed to the lead role. So talk a little bit about how you go about identifying those roles and then more importantly, communicating those roles to your players.
0: Yeah, I think number one, there's, there's no probably about it. I, I wasn't the best player. And, you know, my first year, I tore my ACL. I was 17 years old, toured in the state all-star game at St. John Arena, and really thought my life was over. You know, back then, you know, it was a whole year rehab, and you know, I ended up walking on at Ohio University. You know, it was damaged goods. Um, you know, to a lot of college coaches, so I went rehab my whole first year. I didn't practice, I didn't play. So even even doing that, you kind of felt like an outsider. You know, not a part of it. Didn't travel, didn't practice. You know, you spent a lot of time in the training room. And then my first year, which was my redshirt freshman year, I played 39 minutes the whole year. So not even the equivalent of one whole game. You know, I was the guy on the end of the bench waving the towel, getting in, you know, with a minute, 17 seconds left in a blowout, trying to get a shot up or a rebound. You know, the club trill, uh, you know, make the trillionaire club. And, you know, that summer I kind of, you know, realized like, hey, look, I got I to gotta find a way to get on the court. And, you know, like you said, I averaged 32 points, 12 and a half rebounds, first time all Ohio. That didn't matter. You know, I had Gary Trent there, Gino Ford, Curtis Simmons, you know, just a lot of really good players. So I kind of had to figure out a way for the, to get on the court. So I got in the weight room, started lifting. I ended up benching 355 pounds, you know, became the defensive guy, take charges, dive on the floor for loose balls. The tough guy when a skirmish broke out, you know, blockout rebounder, energy guy, coach on the floor. And my sophomore, junior, senior year, you know, I was I was captain. Uh, played probably I don't know anywhere from 24 to 28 minutes a game until my uh, career ended. You know with the torn ACL, and you know you, I really had to figure out you know what my role was. And I, I think I averaged maybe 6.6 rebounds my career. You know we had Gary Trent where we knew he had to score, he had to touch the ball. We Geno Ford was a scorer. So the the teams that I played on, we we were selfless, no egos. We knew Gary Trent was the best player. And we knew he had to touch the ball. We didn't care, you know, how many times we had to throw him the ball. And that's really what it takes, you know, a team to buy in, to be selfless, to, you know, check your ego at the door. And, you know, I think in in today's society, that's tough for kids to do. You know, these young people are grown and and brought up, being told how good they are. They're the best team, uh, best player on their team. And if they're not, they transfer. Uh, They'll go to a prep school, go to a different AAU team. And I think that's kind of what you see a lot. So it's it's difficult sometimes as a coach to get people to buy in. And if you do get a kid to buy in, sometimes it's tough. The external people around them like don't want to accept it. Or, you know, when I was at Ohio State, you know, after every game, the first thing the kids did they went to the cell phones, and they got a text message from Uncle AAU coach, high school coach, brother, dad, whoever it may be. And it's like Adam's not throwing you the ball. Walt shouldn't be playing in front of you. You know, you're better than so-and-so, so so you're getting all these negative thoughts in your head, whereas a coach, you're trying to put 13 guys, you know, on the same platform towards the same goal, and it's almost like you just have to constantly, you know, rehash and and talk about, you know, roles, and, and, you know, it's tough to get kids to buy in, and when you do have a team that buys into their role, you know, as minimal as might be, like two years ago when we went to the NCAA tournament, you know, there were no fans, and, you know, you had to bring your own energy and excitement. There were some guys on our bench that were phenomenal energy guys. And I credit, you know, us winning. They're as big a part as Jason Preston was, who's in the NBA right now. And they bought into the role. They accepted the role. Now, it's a lot easier when you're winning, right? When, when you're winning, it's hard to, you know, sit there and say, I should be playing in front of so-and-so. When you're losing and going on a losing streak or someone's struggling, you know, that's when the issues happen. But I think transparency is, you know, number one, the first and foremost thing. You have to be transparent um let let the young man know what your thoughts are what you think their role is get their feedback on what they think their role is and and now when you when you have that transparency it's easier to call somebody out or you know call them to the table you know I like to have every kid write down three individual goals and three team goals and you know I sit down and talk to them about their individual goals their team goals and really that's how I like to motivate them you know if if someone tells me they want to lead the league in rebounding you know they're not putting the effort and we stat it out and you know, say, hey, you had 10 opportunities to go. You went four. Like, your effort level's not there. You, you told me you want to do this. So that's kind of how we do it. You know, transparency, you know, the goal setting, and, uh, you know, really just, you know, talking about it and, and, and making sure everyone's on the same page. So, Coach,
3: you alluded to a little bit there, going back to your high school days. Magnolia, Ohio, Sandy Valley, the Cardinals. Put up some pretty good numbers there. 32 and, what'd you say, 32 and 12 your senior year? Um, go on to win a couple of district titles and and play at OU. Um, You were a three-sport athlete at at Sandy Valley. Do you think that benefited you as you took that next step to playing at the collegiate level, and and why so?
0: Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's almost like comparing Michael Jordan and LeBron, right? They're two different eras. You know, I, I think when I was growing up, AAU had just started becoming a thing. And it was more local, central. And, uh, you know, I played I played on the AAU team, you know, with some guys from Canon and played with some guys from Wadsworth. So it wasn't very big, you know. And, and nowadays, everyone's got trainers and workout people. And, you know, it's a, it's a year-round deal. And I think for me, you know, Sandy Valley, small town, USA, you know, morals, values. And, you know, we, we had a graduating class of 120 people. So a lot of kids play three different sports, whereas if you go to a bigger school, right, you know, where there's two, three, four thousand kids, you know, just more competitive and you got kids who just do one thing year round. So it's harder unless you're a great athlete, right, to play three different sports to be able to commit. So I I like the idea of doing it. You know, I think it gives your body a break. But a lot of kids and, and even parents, right, parents, I think, you know, they just feel like they put so many resources and money and travel and time into having their kid be really good. And, you know, high school sports has kind of gone away from what really high school sports is supposed to be about. And it, it, it's like every person thinks their kid's going to be, a, you know, a college athlete, whether it's Division One, Two, or Three. And it's hard. It's hard. It's a lot of luck. It's a lot of, you know, timing. It's a lot of skill and work, a lot of talent. And, uh, you know, not everyone's able to do it. But I like playing three sports. You know, I actually golfed. You know, for four years, I was the biggest kid in school. And um, my mom was a teacher, and she was, uh, her classroom was right by the, the football coach. And every day he'd be like, Can you get your son to come out? And I think she would agree to it if I was the kicker, because if they touched the kicker, it was a penalty. And, uh, but I, I love golf, and I was horrible when I started and got to be pretty good. And, uh, you know, then I went transition to basketball. And even during basketball, I would go wrestle or heavyweight. You know, I wrestled when I was a youth. So I would go practice with them a little bit, even though they they crossed uh, seasons. And then, um, you know, I was track and field. I was, you know, the big man, the fat man relay and threw the shot, the disc, you know, ended up being pretty good in the discus. But I I like playing three sports. I think it was a different, you know, group you hang out with, a different, you know, thing. But I think nowadays it's tough. Like everyone wants to specialize and it's year round. And if you don't have a trainer and you don't play AAU and then you're going into high school in June and then AAU in July, you know, the, I, I think a lot of these kids just play too much. And I, I think that goes for every sport across the board.
2: Coach, talk to us a little bit. Um, in high school, you were coached by an individual that many people in eastern Ohio and northeastern Ohio would recognize the name and Bob D-Lap. And talk to us about uh, Coach D-Lap and, and the uh, experience playing for him. And, and did you did you pull anything away from him? That that you have maybe uh, applied to your coaching.
0: Yeah, and I give Coach D-Lap a lot of credit. And a few years ago, I spoke at the uh, Hall of Fame Club, and he was able to you know be in attendance, and that meant a lot to me. Uh, you know, he and my mom stayed good friends, and I, I still contacted him. He, he used to come to my games. You know, when I was at Ohio State, and uh, you know, come to Akron and Kent, we played up there. But you know, I was fortunate to play for him for four years. My, my freshman year, I started on JV and got. You know varsity pretty quick and you know he just he coached us throughout the whole year and you know even then like you know I, I bought into my role as a freshman you know I was six foot two at the time and uh you know played my role and, and you know I think things about roles like the, the your role could change day to day week to week game to game definitely probably changing year to year with people graduating and leaving and you know, I, I didn't score a whole lot my junior year. I think maybe 10, 11 a game, but we had some really good seniors. You know, Steve Naisel, Richard Addy, uh, Greg Provance, And, uh, you know, my senior year, I had to score. And I think we play, We always played our best basketball, you know, late in the year. So I always remembered that from Coach D-Lap. You know, we, we kept on practicing hard. And, and uh, like you know, as you mentioned, we won two district championships, played in the regionals, uh, which were great experiences. And, you know, you don't realize how hard it is to get there you know, in, until you're there. And you know, we lost a number one ranked Youngstown Liberty um, by two, played in the Canton Fieldhouse in the regional, thought we had a chance to go to state. And I think we might've been maybe 13 and 12 at a time, uh, but but we always played our best basketball. And that's one thing I always remember.
2: So coach transitioning um, to college now and in your playing days at OU, uh, you played for an absolute legend in, in, in coach Larry Hunter. Uh, share your thoughts on coach Hunter, Uh, the impact he had on your life and your coaching
0: career as well. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it wasn't for Coach. And, you know, when I took the job at OU, you know, I told – I spoke to a booster group. and I told him, I said, the one regret I have about taking this job is that Coach Hunter wasn't here to see it. You know, he passed away a few years ago. And, you know, he meant a lot to me. He, He was hard on us. He coached us hard. You know, he was old school. You know, he was a Division III coach at Wittenberg, very successful, you know, for a lot of years. And, you know, we used to call him Yoda. Like, he, he just had all these, like, isms, like Larry-isms. And, you know, the big thing he always wanted, you know, a million times, I like can hear it clear as day, he yelled, compete a million times during practice. You got to compete. You got to compete. So he was really big on competing. And and that's, that always stuck to me. You know, I was a guy who wasn't very talented, athletic, but I played hard. You know, I, I, I gave everything I had. And a lot of it was him, you know, just pushing you through that barrier and that wall. And, you know, I was a biology major. I wanted to be a physical therapist and, you know, I had no real intentions of coaching. And we were my senior year, we were 16 to four. I tore my ACL for the third time and that really ended my career. So the last 11 games, you know, I sat on the sidelines and, you know, just saw a different perspective and watched it differently and, you know, was able to sit in on a couple uh, coaches' meetings uh, just to kind of be involved. And, um, you know, at the end of the year, we lost an assistant coach, uh, Bill Brown, who ended up going back to Wittenberg. And, you know, Coach Hunter asked me if I'd be interested in coaching. And I had no idea what it entailed, what it meant. You know, like most 22-year-olds, you have no idea what you want to do in your life. So I was the restricted earnings coach, you know, that year. I made $6,000, my first job. But once I got into it, I loved it. You know, just being around the sport. And, you know, when, when they always say when you leave it, you miss the locker room, right? You miss the competitiveness piece. And, you know, I'm starting year 28 this coming season. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Coach Hunter. So I a lot of, you know, gratitude to him for getting me in the business. And, and uh, you know, he was a great mentor. I used to call him for big decisions, you know, before I got married. You know, got my engagement ring, you know, from a you know, place his wife knew. And, you know, any job that I took, I would call him beforehand. So he, he was very instrumental in me being here today.
3: Coach, you spoke about that. Uh, you tore your ACL for the third time in your career. And, you know, one door closes, another one opens. You know, as the saying goes. So you start going down the uh, the path to be a coach. Can you talk to us about those those early years at Charleston, Marshall, Robert Morris, as you kind of worked your way up through the ranks and what you remember about those years?
0: Yeah, I think you know you don't realize really when you're going through it, but you know you're dealing with adversity in a major way, and you know you're not you're not doing what you're used to doing or how you're capable of doing it. Like like I said, when I was 17 years old, I tore my ACL. And it wasn't common back then. You didn't know a lot about it. And, you know, back then it was like, hey, maybe you can play again. You know, it's going to take a year to see how it responds. You know, now it's a four to six month process. You know, going through that, you know, just taught you a lot of lessons, right? Work ethic, how to get back, you know, trying to stay positive and fight through it. You know, just different times. And then same thing, fast forward to my senior year. You know, you tear your ACL, you're 16 and four and 11 and one in the league. You're done playing. Your career's over. And, you know, when it happens like that, you don't know what to think, what to do. You don't feel a part of it. You know, you feel helpless because you can't help your team. And like you said, it probably ended up me, you know, being able to coach, you know, through that. And like I said, when I got into coaching, I didn't know what it meant. Didn't know I was going to make a career of it. But after my first year, I left um, to go with Jason G down at the University of Charleston. Jason was an assistant at OU when I played. And he went back to his own mater. And I was there for three years. And, you know, I was the only full-time assistant coach. I was in charge of the laundry room, in charge of facilities, um, in charge of all the scouting, all the recruiting. And I was also the compliance director for 14 Sports, which was like the worst job and probably one of the best jobs I ever had. Uh, but I will never be a compliance director uh, ever again. Um, but, you know, you just really, you, you did everything. Cranked the basket, swept the floor, drove the vans. You know, it was a great experience and lesson for me to to kind of get my hands into every you know aspect of it, you know, washing the clothes, and then I was fortunate to get a break with uh, Greg White at Marshall. I was at Marshall for four years, and uh, you know, I was in the process. I thought I was going to get a head coaching job at thirty years old, and some more adversity hit. You know, Greg White ended up taking University of Charleston job, which I thought I was going to get, and uh, I ended up going with him for a years as an assistant coach. And um, you know, I was fortunate enough uh, to go with Mark Schmidt up at Robert Morris. And there were two guys, Tim O'Shea and Ed DeCellis, who I didn't really know. Tim was at OU. Ed DeCellis was at uh, Penn State. He rec- They both recommended me to Mark Schmidt. And uh, I went up there for my interview, and Hurricane Ivan was coming through. And you've been to Pittsburgh before. You know, it's all hills. All the water was running, and it flooded every every uh, you know road that there was, so I couldn't get out. So I ended up staying the night at his house with his kids and his wife watching radio, and thankfully I, I got the job. So I thank Hurricane Ivan for that. And, uh, then I went to Akron with Keith Danbrott for a uh, couple of years, three years, and then, uh, over to Ohio State for seven and got my first head coaching job at Stony Brook. So I've, I've been around a lot of great coaches, assistants, uh, and head coaches, and, you know, they kind of help shape you who you become as a head coach, but, you know, I, I wouldn't change my path for, for anything.
2: Yeah. So coach, um, you know, our society today, um, we kind of have a, a microwave culture as opposed to that slow cooker culture. And, um, as an assistant coach, uh, w- was it hard early on to um, essentially the saying "be where your feet are" and, and being present where you are, as opposed to looking towards the future? Was that hard for you to do early on in your career? How did you overcome that? When did when did it click that hey, I I, I just need to be present where I'm at, and uh, essentially another saying, make the big time where
0: I'm at. Yeah. It, it- it probably took a good seven years, right? You know, I mean, you want to chase the money, the the level. And, you know, you don't realize that when you're young. You know, I made $6,000 my first job, made $23,000 my second job. You know, it's like when you're doing all this work and you see your friends, you know, moving up and, and, and talk to them. You know, you want bigger, you want better. Sometimes bigger isn't better, right? And I always say the grass is greener where you water it. And, you know, one thing I always heard was the job that you're at, right, be a star in your role and understand that you have to make where you're at the big time. And when you treat it like that, I think good things happen. So probably when I, when I got to Marshall, um, you know, you're always chasing jobs. And I was up for a job at Cal Berkeley uh, with Ben Braun, who, and he ended up hiring uh, one of his former players, Lorenzo Neely. But, you know, at the time I was crushed because, you know, it was an opportunity to get a high major assistant job. But, but I think the, 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 the way my career's been, um, you know, I never really had anyone behind me. I, I kind of earned everything I got and worked my up way up. You know, when I got the Ohio State job, I didn't really know Thad Mott. I never really met him uh, maybe one time at Hargrave. And I think I was the second guy he ever hired that, uh, you know, he didn't know or, or was in his coaching tree. But he needed an Ohio guy. I was at Akron with Coach Danbrot. We had been successful. I think we won 26, 25, 24 games in three years. And you know, it was a lot of timing, a lot of luck involved. But I think you know, like anything, when you understand why you do what you do, you know, that's when you really figure it out. And at first, I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. Like I was doing it, it was a job. I love basketball. But when you start, you know, recruiting and getting into it and building relationships and seeing these young people grow from you know the the first recruitment time to matriculation to graduating. Like, some of the best text messages I had when we beat Virginia when were guys I coached at Marshall and University of Charleston and Robert Morris. Like, those relationships, you know, the text messages on my birthday, um, you know, Father's Day. That the, When you understand why you do what you do, I think that's really when you understand, like, you know, do do a great job where you're at and, and good things will happen. And but and, uh, it's tough sometimes, right? And like I said, it's, you know, the grass is always greener. I've been at Division 2 I've been at, you know, low major, mid-major, high major. You know, they all have their challenges. And I think in today's world with social media and the way everything's going, you know, you got, you got to do a great job where you're at and be, be happy where you're at.
2: Yeah, coach. So, uh, you mentioned Akron, Ohio state, uh, coach Dan brought coach Mata, two names that, uh, Are very familiar to Ohio coaches. Um, I was wondering if you could just uh, maybe give us one or two specific things that you took away uh, from each coach that that maybe you incorporate into your programs uh, at Stony Brook uh,
0: and OU. I think a lot of times you have an idea of you know you you know everyone likes to copycat, right? So if you see someone win a a national championship and they run an offense, hey, we're going to run that offense. And you know, there's just so many ways to do it, and different people do it different ways, and and there's a lot of people that are successful with the way they do it. And you know, working for Keith, you know, I knew Keith when I was playing. I met him through David Greer, uh, who was an assistant coach um, at OU when I played. You know, just watching Keith and, and his path, and 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 being at Robert Morris, I knew him, you know, at Akron. But he was so intense. Um, he had a great rapport and relationship with his players. He was hard on those guys. He coached them hard, but he really cared about them off the floor. And, you know, one big thing he was always big on was touches, like calling, texting, you know, every single day. And it might be 10 seconds. It might be 50 seconds. It might be five minutes. You know, just, hey, how you doing? How's classes? How's your girlfriend? How's your family? You need anything. You know, really just constantly concerning and, and, and showing these young men that you care. Uh, he, he was really good at that. And he, like I said, he coached them hard, but he was fair to them. Um, and he, he's a great coach. And, you know, Coach Mata was a phenomenal communicator. You know, he just had a way of getting through to people and, and understood what button to push to motivate them. And I think, you know, when you're dealing with 13 you know, people, you're dealing with 13 different backgrounds, 13 different personalities. And as a coach, a lot of times it's tough to figure everything out where, you know, I might be able to yell at Adam to get him motivated. But if I yell at Walt, you know, he's going to go in the show. So you got to really and he was just amazing just watching him. I always said his gut instinct was ninety nine point nine percent gold. Like any decision he made was like, you know, you might question it, but it would work out. And he was ultra positive, um, you know, which which is another thing I really took from coach. And I think that really helped me, you know, taking over these these both these jobs. Is just being positive, you know, coaching your team, um, you know, coaching the right way, saying the right things, um, how you say it the the right way. I think that's really been a big reason for our success at Stony Brook and uh, and OU.
3: So, Coach, let's recap your time at Ohio State just a little bit as an assistant. Uh, you were part of three Big Ten Conference regular season titles, four Sweet 16s, an Elite Eight, and the Final Four in 2012. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that run at Ohio State? You had the opportunity to coach players like D'Angelo Russell, Evan Turner, Jared Tellinger, uh, Aaron Kraft, what it was like coaching them. Um, if my master right, I think Mark Titus, I know you mentioned Club Trill, he was there as well, right? Yep, I made, I made his book. Okay. Great book. Oh, what a great book. Did, were you there for any of the videos, the, the YouTube videos? Yeah, were you aware of those the Yeah, the, the time? montage, yeah. Yeah. The okay. fundamental montage. Point. But talk to us, I guess, more so about, you know, the, the run of what was happening on the court, you know, and some of those special players that you got to coach.
0: Yeah, I think if you go back, you know, when I talked about timing and luck, right, of being in the right place, and I was very fortunate to get an opportunity. Like when, when Coach Mata first called me, it was Easter Sunday. It was an unknown call and I very rarely take him and I took it and I'm literally sitting there talking to him for about a minute thinking somebody's prank phone calling me. And after a minute, I'm like, holy crap, this is Thad Mata. You know, so he talks about Archie leaving and, you know, the next night uh, I went down to his house and, and talked to him for like four hours and it really wasn't an interview. It was more like, hey, here's how we do things. Here's what we do. And I was very fortunate to come in at a time where, you know, the first three or four years, you know, he, he kind of built that thing up. And once he got Greg Oden and Mike Conley and Daquan Cook and those guys, Costa Kufis, you know, he, he was rolling. So I came in at a really good time with some really good players and, you know, was very fortunate to be able to experience, you know, big 10 championships. I think, you know, Thad won five regular season and four tournament big 10 titles, you know, went to lead eights, final fours, like you mentioned, and just really fortunate to be around him and, and, and the staff. And, and I think, You know, one of the best things, all those guys you mentioned, like they're great players, but they're better people. Like I still talk to all those guys, Uh, you know, Evan Ravenel, John Diebler, David Lighty, um, you know, Danny Peters and Mark Titus, who were walk-ons at the time. And, you know, it's it's really cool. You know, all those guys are successful in their own way, right? Whether it's pro career overseas, professionally, business-wise, Aaron Kraft's in medical school right now. And, you know, just to know you had a small part in maybe helping them or, you know, just being around them, um, it it was just a fun experience. Feel very fortunate and blessed to be there at the time. And, you know, like I said, you know, you didn't feel like you worked for Thad. You felt like you worked with him. You know, he gave you ownership, uh, helped prepare you to be a head coach. And there's probably not a week that goes by that I don't call him. Like when I took the Stony Brook job in my first couple months as a head coach, I called him and apologize for being a horrible assistant. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, you know, a lot of stuff that I would do. I'm like, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that or done it differently, but uh, he's an awesome mentor and and a great person. Um, You know, a big reason why I was able to get the Stonenberg job and the OU job.
3: Yeah. So coach, I wanted to ask, you've been fortunate enough to, to play and coach in on some pretty big stages, some high profile games, you know, whether it be in front of 15, 20,000 people, nationally televised games, can you share with our listeners? Have you picked up any tips, tricks over the years to prepare your players for playing on a stage that like that that maybe they've never played on before? You know, and it doesn't have to be a nationally televised game. Maybe you know it's a state championship game, something like that. Have you picked up anything over the years to help get them ready for that stage?
0: You know, it's one of those deals where you don't want to make it bigger than it is, right? Where they get so pumped up and so amped, but. You know, it's hard sometimes when you go into Wisconsin's sellout crowd like Michigan State, you know, Purdue, you know, it's 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 different until you go through it and experience it. And I remember when I went out for the final four, I mean, there's 75000 people there and, you know, you go out for practice and it's an empty dome. It's an elevated uh, you know court. I mean, I'm sitting there looking around like, holy cow, this is massive. And you know I think, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, you want your kids to have a similar routine everywhere they go. You know, so, you know, no matter what gym they go into, you know, their routine is their routine. So it's a comfort zone level. You know, you know, we pipe in crowd music and stuff like that when we're going on a big road game. But I I think just, you know, talking to them about the preparation going in, you know, expecting to win. And, and, you know, when you go on the road, you got to be mentally tougher. You got to be physically tougher. You know, there's just certain elements that you try to talk about and preach. You know, going into it, you know, I think nowadays, you know, we we had mentioned, I think we're going to talk about like, you know, the E plus R equals O, right? No matter what happens event wise, what's your response? And, you know, we use that a lot at Stony Brook. We use it every day at, at OU. And, you know, I got it when I was at Ohio State, you know, Tim Kite in 2014 started working with Urban Meyer and, you know, listening to his Focus 3 podcast, which is a phenomenal podcast. I don't think they do it anymore, but there's a lot of great stuff that you can pick up. And You know, we use that response all the time with our program positivity, work ethic. You know, two things you can control your attitude, your effort level every single day, every single event that happens. So, coach, uh, you spent 20 years as an assistant coach uh,
2: before accepting your first head job at Stony Brook. And I'm sure there were some other opportunities along the way, maybe that you pursued or others pursued you. But what made it the right time for you? to take that next step and accept that head job at Stony Brook. And how did you go about establishing your culture and developing your program? You know, some of the coaches listening to this podcast are going to be going into a new program this year. And when you went into your program at Stony Brook um, in in doing some of the research I did on you, it it wasn't just a turnkey operation there. You had to make some difficult decisions and kind of talk a little bit about that with us.
0: Yeah, I think... Number one, it's hard to get a head coaching job, right? I don't care what level. You know, there's only so many of them. And I think being an assistant coach at Ohio State, you know, your job as an assistant is better than a lot of head coaching jobs. You know, Thad used to always tell me, like, don't leave for a bad situation. You know, if you can, you know, have it be a top three job in that league where you have history, you have budget, you have facilities where you can win. Um, and there's some places you can go, it's, it's, it's you know, set up not to win. And, you know, Stony Brook was one one of those deals. I'd never been to Long Island. You know, I, I was fortunate to have that be my first head coaching job. Beautiful facility, very good budget. Um, they had went to the NCAA tournament the year before Steve Peichel was the head coach. It's the first time they had went ever. You know, the, the program was only, I think, maybe 19, 20 years old, Division I, a very young university. So there wasn't a lot of history uh, there. You know, there were Graduated, I think, five of their top six players when I took the job. Um, you know, I found out after my press conference, the night I flew in for my press conference or my my interview was a Wednesday. And I interviewed Thursday, Friday, got offered the job, came back to Columbus, went back out with my family. And then Monday after the press conference, my AD pulls me in his office and said, Hey, two of your players got arrested Wednesday night. You know, a smash and grab deal, five thousand bucks. And I'm like, welcome to head coaching, right? You know, the paper the next day was, you know, Bulls named head coach and then two uh, Stony Brook players arrested for a felony. And, you know, so for me, I was taking over a, a program that had just won, right? Went to the tournament, but it was a completely different team. I had one returning starter and maybe one other guy that played eight, nine, 10 minutes a game. And the one returning starter ended up getting arrested like twice in three weekends. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, doing the right thing and being high character and, You know, love the game of basketball, being an academic, you know, graduating, you know, when something like that happens and it's your best player, what are you going to do? You know, I I had, you know, seven other guys who were returning looking at me like, hey, you know, you talk this, what are you going to do? Well, you know, we ended up getting rid of them. And, you know, I think for them, the credibility was there, you know, of what we wanted to do, how we wanted to do it. You know, we wanted high character guys to do the right thing on the floor, off the floor. Guys that love the game of basketball, want to be pros and young men serious about earning a degree. Non-negotiables for us are going to class was non-negotiable, attitude and effort level. You know, when, when we took over, you know, we, we had a lot of role players, guys that didn't play. And, you know, it really helped me, you know, being with that, the positivity side to it. I went in with a growth mindset, you know, just getting better every day, getting closer as a team every day. And I, I think, you know, so many times as coaches, you're worried about the results. And, and when you're building a program, right, you got to set the culture, the foundation of how you want to do it, what you want to do. And you might take some lumps early. And and it's like, you know, you can win, learn from winning, you can learn from losing. It's it's a lot better to learn from winning. You can learn the same things. But it's like, okay, why did we lose? Right? We didn't we gave up 18 offensive rebounds. Well, let's let's continue working on blocking out and understand, you know, we might chart you had 15 blockout opportunities, you only blocked out eight times eight times. You know, that's not good enough. We gotta be at a 75% clip. Um, might be transition defense one game. So we just really continually try to get better throughout the course of the year. And, and very similar, you know, we were picked seventh out of nine my first year, uh, lost our first four games. Uh, we were down 10 at halftime to Hampton. You know, we end up winning by 10. You know, you really saw guys buying in a little bit more, right? When they start seeing everything you're talking about come to fruition and happening, you know, it's easier to get that buy-in, you know, when, when you start winning in, in everything you're doing. But we got better throughout the course of the year, ended up making it to the semifinals in the conference tournament, uh, finished second in our league, and, uh, you know, ha- had a really good first year. But I think you really just have to do it your way. You know, uh, you know I can't be Thad Mod, I can't be Keith Dambrot. I remember my first time out, I called in a game. <laughs> I called a timeout. And before I said one word, it was the first horn. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I haven't said anything yet. You know, just little things you don't prepare for. Uh, We had a lot of close games, you know, my first year. I mean, games within five points were just unbelievable. And so you go back and watch, you know, all the last, you know, five minutes of every game and try to get two underneath out of bounds, two side out of bounds, maybe two set plays, quick hitters. But I I really think just having a growth mindset of getting better every day, continue to stay positive, you know, work on your deficiencies of what you need to do as a team and, and get better. Oh, Coach, I love that. Just
3: Being intentional with, with what you're saying and what you're doing on a daily basis and, and taking that proper time to reflect on your experiences and applying that moving forward. A lot of us don't do that enough. That's good advice right there. So let's talk about OU now. They say third time's a charm. Uh, the first two times you, you had applied for the job just didn't quite work out. So third time around, can you talk to us uh, what it means to you and your family to be back in Athens um, and, and to be taking on the challenge of of leading the team this year as, as opposed to the last two times?
0: I think, you know, w- when you, when you start going through coaching, like at some point you want to be a head coach and sometimes you think you're ready, but you're not. And like I said, it like all goes back to timing and luck, right. Being in the right place and doing the right thing. And, and, you know, it's a small window sometimes. And, you know, when I was at Ohio state, you know, I, I didn't have an agent, didn't think I needed one. You know, I played at OU and uh, I think one year we were 32 and three, number one in the country. And I I didn't get the job. You know, the other year, you know, we go to the Final Four. I don't know what, we were 31-8 or something that year. You know, didn't get the job. And at the time, you know, uh, Jim Schaus was the AD. You know, his mindset and his philosophy was this hire a sitting head coach. He wanted a a sitting head coach. And I wasn't that. So if I ever wanted to be the head coach while Jim Schaus was there, I had to go get another job. And it worked out where I was at Stony Brook um you know we had we kind of overachieved my first year you know we got rid of a lot of guys I think we finished 18 and 14 you know took a little dip my second year we were 13 and and 18 I think we lost a lot of close games that year and then my third year you know we ended up 24 and 8 we beat South Carolina we beat Rhode Island we beat George Washington we beat Northern Iowa and at the end of the year you know I had a couple of opportunities to leave a couple people I said no to and then Jim Shouse called me and you know You know, I have a daughter. Uh, She was a, I think, junior, sophomore, junior in high school. You know, my son, I think, was twelve at the time, and my daughter was sixteen. She had lived in eight different cities, and my wife uh, works for Deloitte Consulting. And so, to me, it was going to be a family decision. So, you know, we met as a family and asked the kids if they wanted to move again. Both said they, you know, would want to move back to Ohio. Uh, My wife's a saint. You know, a lot of times when you get a job, you leave and they stay, and you know, she's a career woman and has her own job and works probably more hours than I do. Um, so it, it's a tough transition. So, you know, we ended up deciding to come back to Ohio. And, and uh, you know, like I said, when I, when I wanted to be a head coach, it was a dream of mine to be a head coach of my alma mater. And I remember, you know, when I walked in for my press conference and just, you know, kind of, you know, walking into the arena and soaking it in and, and just like looking at everything. Because I hadn't been back to campus, you know, in a while. You know, I didn't even go back for my interview. I interviewed at a, in, in an airport in Long Island. And just kind of a lot of memories, you know, came back. You know, it's it, uh, you know, very similar. My first year, uh, got rid of our best leading returning scorer. Uh, our second leading scorer, Jason Carter, transferred to Xavier. And, you know, we had a lot of role players back who didn't play a whole lot. So I kind of had experience of going through it, rebuilding and, and building a culture and, and positivity and work ethic and the response. E plus R equals O, and just really having that growth mindset, I think really helped us, you know, our first year. We were pegged dead last, 13 out of 13. And, uh, you know, we, we finished, uh, I think, seventh, tied for seventh, you know, made the conference tournament. And then, uh, you know, my second year went to the NCAA tournament and just awesome to see our guys experience what I was able to experience. You know, there's nothing better than seeing your name pop up on the TV, you know, on Selection Sunday. And, and to see our guys enjoy that moment together and cut the nets down and the confetti and T-shirts and hats, you know, kind of came full circle to when I played and, and was able to go through and experience it as a player and then as a coach.
2: Yeah. So, coach, I'd like to talk about that that 2021 team and that run you had. And and there's two things I remember about that run. The first was your individual locker room celebrations and dance moves. And second was a guy by the name of Jason Preston. He got a lot of media attention during that run. And I had the opportunity to hear his story uh, a while back. And, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to share his story a little bit with our listeners. What was it about about him that, that made him special, um, eventually landed him in the NBA, where he's now playing for the Clippers, I believe? Uh, just share a little bit about Jason.
0: Well, the, the dance moves, let's start there. And you know, my first game, we played that St. Bonaventure, and they were, I think, celebrating their 1960 championship team. I think we had eight scholarship players, and it's a packed house. I don't know if you ever been to St. Bonaventure, but it's a it's a it's a bandbox and, and they, they they're a phenomenal crowd. And I'm playing, you know, coaching against you know one of my mentors, Mark Schmidt, and um, you know we end up winning the game. So you know, trying to change the culture and have a winning attitude and a winning mentality, like I just went in and started dancing, you know, after the game, and then we beat I think Heidelberg game two, and then we go to Iona game three. And we end up being Iona, who was a really good team at Iona. And I remember walking to the locker room and our guys just sitting there. And I'm like, man, we just won. Like, come on. So I was just spontaneous. I went in and did the billionaire walk like Conor McGregor. And I just walked through the whole, you know, center of it. And our guys start going crazy. And it ended up going viral. Like TMZ picked it up. Conor McGregor retweeted it. And, you know, you want to enjoy it. It's hard to win, right? It, it, you put all this effort and time and and sweat and, you know, all the things into it going to win. It's hard to win. You know, I've been on teams where you win by eight and everyone thinks you should have won by 30, and it's like you lost. And I'm like, come on, fellas. You know, like we won the game. So, you know, you're just trying to instill, like, hey, you celebrate it, right? Enjoy it. And so, you know, you kind of pick and choose your times when you do it and when you don't. And, uh, you know, you want to have fun with it. Like, I think, you know, it's, it's hard and it's a long year and, and you want to celebrate it when you can. Uh, Mark Schmidt, when we were Robert Morris, it was like you never knew when your next win was coming, right? So we wanted to celebrate it. We might go have a beer afterwards or whatever. But uh, you know, that's where I, I kind of learned that celebrate every everything, no matter what. One point win, twenty point win. You know, I was very fortunate when I got the job. Jason Preston was about six three and a half, 170 pounds. And you know, I watched some game film. You know, live. I, I would watch, tune into OU games when you know off night. And you know, one thing that always stuck out was his. Uh, he had elite vision. He could really pass the basketball, but he was skinny. And one of the first things I did when I, I got the job, I said, hey, look, you know, you got a chance to, you know, play at the next level because you're passing skill, but you have to get stronger. And, you know, we kind of did the graph of all these NBA point guards of what their height and size and weight was and said, you got to gain at least 20 pounds. Well, he really did a great job that summer of lifting and eating the right way. And, you know, his background is just, it's a movie. Like it's, it's like a blindside theme, right? Perseverance and overcoming all odds. You know, he was six feet tall, 140 pounds when he graduated high school, scored 52 points his whole senior year, right? Now he had like two points a game. And he ended up playing that July. He was enrolled at Central Florida, taking classes for journalism. Well, four of his buddies needed the fifth guy to play in this unsigned tournament in in Orlando, AAU. So he had nothing going on. So he's like, yeah, I'll play. Well, he forgot his shoes like 15 minutes away. He turns around and go gets his shoes and he goes back and plays and plays well. And uh, a prep school coach came up to him afterwards. He's like, hey, where are you going to school next year? He's like, well, Central Florida. And they're like, he's going, you're going to play at Central Florida. He's like, no, I'm just a student there. I'm in classes now. He's like, look, you're a division one, two player, man. You got to go to prep school, you know, so you can be recruited and seen. Well, his mom died his junior year in high school. So he lived with his mom's best friend's son, who was 27 years old. The only relatives he had was his aunt and uncle lived in Jamaica. And his family wanted him to stay enrolled to get his education. And, you know, he kind of bet on himself. So he goes to the prep school. And there's four different teams. There's the A, B, C, D team. The A team's the travel team. B team's like a high school team. C team's like a rec league. And D team's like the people who probably shouldn't even be there. Well, he was on the B team, played well. They bump him up to the A team. He doesn't play hardly at all. So he goes to the coach and says, can I play on the C team with my buddies? So he goes to the C team. And he's averaging like a triple-double, like in this rec league. He ends up making his own highlight tape and puts it on Twitter. And to my knowledge, there were two schools that reach out to him, Ohio University and Longwood. And he visited both and, and really liked OU. And Saul Phillips, you know, give him a lot of credit for seeing something in Jason, right? Takes him. At that time, he might have been 6'3", 160, you know, uh, in this prep school because he grew a little bit, you know, three, three inches and, and, got stronger. And, um, you know, I think he averaged seven points a game his freshman year. And then, you know, when I took over, uh, he, he had a phenomenal sophomore year and, you know, the game that kind of, he came out, we were playing in Illinois and, uh, it was our third game in three days. You know, they got, I assume new. um, they got big fella, Kofi Coburn. You know, I think they're top five in the country. And, you know, it's, it's a big 10 network national TV game. Well, Jason Preston was so focused and so in tune the night before, like I could tell he was ready to play and excited to play. And he ended up having 31 points, eight assists, no turnovers, and was the best player on the floor. Really, really, we should have won the game. Uh, You know, it came down to the last three, four seconds. Uh, We ended up losing by a couple points. But that's when they told his story nationally, and it kind of went viral. And, you know, he ended up having a really good sophomore year. Obviously, uh, you know, did his thing. And then came back for his junior year and, you know, led us to the subway tournament. You know, got drafted by the LA Clippers. You know, just a phenomenal kid. He, he a week before uh, training camp last year, he tore a ligament in his foot. And since he wasn't going to play that whole year, he re-enrolled in classes at OU and ended up finishing his business degree, which one thing, you know, he promised his mom he would get a college education. And, uh, you know, just awesome kid to go through what he's been through and to be where he's at. You know, like he had every excuse in the book. And, and if you think back, it's like, what if he didn't agree to play in the AAU tournament, right? What if he forgot his shoes and didn't want to go back to AAU? What if he didn't bet on himself? You know, just little things in life, right? That He took advantage of an opportunity. And when when kids would go home for Thanksgiving, he had nothing to go home to, right? His home was an apartment in Orlando. And and uh, even by his junior year, you know, the guy he lived with moved in with his girlfriend. So he, he had no place to really go. Athens was his home.
3: Coach, that's that's amazing, and, and that's why we do what we do. And just to to have the opportunity to make an impact on a young man's life like that, um, what a, just what an incredible story! And just like like you've said multiple times here, we we can't take things for granted, you know, because you never know that. Like you said, winning's tough. Having a positive impact on these young men and women that we get to coach, it's it's a rare thing and not something to take lightly. Well, Coach, we want to transition to a segment that we call the Triple Threat. We're gonna give you three topics and let you share your thoughts, ideas, experiences, maybe the first thing that comes to mind with our listeners. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. Okay. Number one, effectively using analytics in your program.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's not an end all be all for us. Like we don't go by this is the best five on the floor in the last five minutes. You know, we we use it a lot scouting, you know, when we scout opponents. You know, maybe tendencies or, you know, where they shoot the ball or what the percentages are or how many times they might run a play. But I think nowadays everything is live sometimes. You know, I think you still have to go with your gut, you know, some, your coaching preparation. But, you know, we do use analytics, but it's not the end all be all. So, Coach, number two, making your practices
2: more competitive.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny, you uh, When I was at Ohio State, you know, I used to go to watch Ohio State football. And that's all Urban did. Everything was competitive. There's always a winner, always a loser. And, you know, even with our guys, like D'Angelo Russell, Aaron Kraft. Aaron Kraft would play hard no matter what. But, like, if you did a transition defense drill or a box-out drill with D'Angelo, he would kind of do it. But if you said, hey, it's plus two for an offensive rebound, plus one for a defensive rebound, you know, we're going to seven. It was game on. And, you know, the, the great ones, they'd love to compete. So we, we try to do a lot of drills with a, a point system uh, to make it competitive. And, you know, some days every drill might be win or loser. And the first time you lose, it might be something. Second time you lose, it might be something. But I think if you can put a point system to, to the drill, you know, to make it competitive where there's a winner and a loser, it's going to mean a little bit more. And, you know, sometimes in the summer we'll do one possession games. And we might do best of three series to one possession. We might do best of seven, best of five. And basically, to get them to understand the value of one possession, the difference of winning and losing, right? So if you know the next bucket wins and we do a jump ball, you better win the jump ball. You know, 80% of time, whoever gets the jump ball is going to score. They're going to win. You know, you better sprint back and transition, right? You better block out because if you don't, you know, it could be a game winner. So, you know, just making anything competitive like that and understanding the value of the possession.
3: So coaches, as any coach knows – Turning off our our coaching brain, especially during the season, is a big challenge. Uh, I heard an interview you had where you said you talked about the decision fatigue that you face being the head of a Division One program. I know we feel it. We're high school coaches. I could only imagine what it's like being at the level you're at. You know, you talked about coming home with your wife, and I don't care what we have for dinner. I don't want to make another decision. So I was curious, what are some things you do during the season to unplug? and recharge
0: yeah it's it's amazing how many you know questions and decisions you have to make you know when you're the head coach you're responsible right you can get input from your assistants and whoever else um that you that you talk to but at the end of the day you're the one making the decision you have to own it you know i think that's part of the good thing right to be a head coach you know you're 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 making it but you know i depend on my assistants a lot they're they i have a great staff we have great continuity um you know like that i empower them and give them a lot of input and in what they do practice. You know, let them run some practice drills. But you know, I think you have to take time. When I was at Stony Brook, you know, Gino Ford was my assistant, and you know, I was in. You know, Gino was in my wedding. You know, we played together, and um, I, I was very fortunate to have him. You know, he got fired at Bradley, went to Florida, and took a year off, did some TV stuff, and I was very fortunate to have him as my assistant, my first head coaching job. And he would tell me like after wins, losses, hey, here's six things we need to work on here's six things to think about, right? And it would just make you think differently because he was already head coach, had been through it. And you know, he would always tell me on your off day, like, hey, you got to get out of the office. Like, don't come in. Go get a massage, you know, go do something. Go read a book, like, just get away. I think that work-life balance, you know, you got to have it. You know, and I don't care what level you're on. And, you know, there's different ways and different coaching styles and philosophies of how to do it. And I think, you know, working for Coach Mata, he was awesome. You know, I had two young kids, and if they had a four o'clock flag football game and we weren't doing anything, like, I'm out of the office. You know, I might leave right after practice at six, you know, go home and have dinner with my family, help do homework, and then I might watch my film and make my calls, you know, 10 o'clock on. So I think you have to have some type of work-life balance, uh, especially today, um, with the stress, the pressure uh, that you put on yourself and even externally. You know, sometimes it's hard, right, but you have to kind of make yourself do it. You know, if you're losing, you put more pressure. And, you know, there's some days you want to go in and maybe work an hour, you know, just to get some things ready or catch up on some things. and uh, But you do – you have to have a work-life balance. And that's one thing Gino really helped me with. You know, just get – hey, get away. Go get a massage. You know, take your downtime because you need it. Such a long year. And, you know, even now it's like year-round. Like even high school, right? You know, you're 10 days and you do your four-man workout groups. And, you know, it, it's never-ending. In college it's worse, right? You're, you're doing spring workouts and then you're going – you know, recruiting and then camps and summer school workouts. And then next thing you know, it's like, whoa, it's August 26th. We got another year of school. Where did, where did the summer go? So, you know, I think you really got to do a good job of paying attention to that. Well, Coach, this has been great. Uh, we have one more question for you. But before we get to
2: that, uh, thank you for coming on the show tonight, uh, spending some time with us on the podcast and, and really uh, helping to support the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association.
0: No, my pleasure. And I think what you guys are doing is phenomenal. You know, I think the, the awareness and, you know, times are changing for you guys too, right? And, and, you know, even trying to fight for extra days in the summer. And, you know, I think COVID helped a little bit, but then they went back. And even what you guys do in April and, in you know, May with the with the uh, shootout that we had. You know, for, for us college coaches, you know, to see kids in a different setting, in a different light with their high school team, because it's tough to get out during the year, right? A lot of times, you know, you guys play the same nights we play or, you know, we might be traveling and you know, it's just tough to get out and see. And I think to, to see that many teams in that environment, in that setting, and, and I loved how you tiered it, right? Where you had a group of, you know, a day and a half and then another group coming in another day and a half where it wasn't the same teams all three days. You could, you could lay eyes on different, you know, teams and, you I always w- love watching a kid with his high school team and his AAU team because, you know, Walt we go back to a lot of times those kids have different roles, right? You see somebody on your a- AAU team and like, ah, I don't know. Then you see them in a high school team, it's like, whoa, who is this kid? Completely different player. You know, a lot of times the high school, you know, might be a little more organized because you're going to run set plays. You know, you know you're know you the guy and, as opposed to being on AAU where you're one of, you know, five or six. So it, 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 that was an awesome setting you know hopefully we can keep building that thing and, and um, you know I know I know that was a lot on your part Adam and and uh, I know you know a lot of coaches appreciate it and you know hopefully we can do it again.
2: yeah and, and for our listeners who um, are unaware of what coach is talking about is referring to the Midwest live showcase mm-hmm. event that we put on uh, in conjunction with uh, Michigan uh, where we had over a hundred teams at the Cedar Point Sports Center competing against each other. Um, in a shootout format and had um, over 120 college coaches attend from all different levels and just a tremendous event. I plan on doing it again uh, next June. And coach, thanks for the the kind words there. But you alluded to it a little bit earlier in the podcast, and and I'd like you just to expand on it a little bit. But Tim Kite, the CEO of Focus 3, um, has given us a formula for dealing with events in our lives, and that is E plus R. Equals O. Uh, The E stands for event, the R stands for response, and the O stands for outcome. And your response to an event will determine the outcome. And if you want a better outcome, obviously you need to choose a better response. And that response he commonly refers to as the R factor. So my question for you is how important is that R factor in your program? And how do you go about teaching the young men in your program how to apply the R factor? To their lives
0: yeah i mean we we use it every recruit that we talk to you know we use it almost every day with our team um you know i think i was fortunate enough to be at ohio state when when urban you know used you know tim as a resource you know i would i would listen you know if you can go back i'm sure it's still there the focus three podcast where he and urban are talking there's some dynamite nuggets that they talk about that make you think differently and, and how you might approach something but, you know, it's like 95% of the time the event happens to you, right? And your response is going to uh, equal the outcome. What The outcome is going to be what your response is. And you can be negative, you can be positive, you can work harder. You know, you choose how you want to respond. And, you know, like, like I told my guys today, it's like every day you do something, you know, you choose, you show up how you want to show up, right? You show up to school, right? How you want to show up. And a lot of times the way you show up impacts people around you and i gave an example like if i came low energy every day in practice how do you think practice would be and they're like not very good and it's like i have a choice to make right but you know we use it a lot i mean i remember my first year at stony brook we're playing we're practicing and my six foot ten my point guard gets fouled there's a no call so he goes down the other team scores well he just runs to the other end and somebody else has to bring the ball up and they throw it to my six ten center to top of the key and he travels and the Assistant coach calls a travel, and he absolutely loses his mind. And I'm just, like, looking at him laughing, like, hold on. Teachable moment, right? Let's talk about this. Let's go back to our response. And it started right with you, Lucas. You got fouled. It wasn't called. So you decided to put your head down and run down the end of the court, which in turn made UC bring the ball up. And he threw it to Jake, and he wasn't used to handling the ball up there, so he traveled. He lost his mind. I'm like, what happens when we go to Maryland and, you know, Every calls against you, so there's a lot of I call them teachable moments, right? There's a lot of teachable moments, and it's like, okay, if you could make your decision again on how you would respond, what would you do differently? And a lot of times it's the culture they come up in, right? It might be a, a, a defense mechanism, you know, a lot of times, and you you have to own it, right? You have to own your response, and sometimes that's difficult, no matter what the event is, and you know, we, we always talk about attitude and actions. Right, you can always control those two things, no matter what happens. And us going to Spain was really good for this because I got a whole new group, and I got three transfers that come in from a different culture. And in Spain, right, the referees—we knew it was a different game. They call travels; they—they don't call illegal screens. It was a physical game, and multiple times my guys were like, "They pushed me in the back, right? They illegal screen." So there was a lot of great teachable moments for us as a coaching staff, of talking about, hey, w- this happened, right? The referee called a travel, next play mentality, right? You, you're not going to change the referee's decision or mind, right? You can't focus on the missed shots, the non-call, the turnover, right? You have to be able to transfer your energy and your thought to the next thing. And I think it's a skill, right, having a next play mentality. and But we constantly preach response. You know to everything grades right family situation whatever it may be you know you control it and we we can't we we talk about it every day
1: thanks for listening to holding court presented by the ohio high school basketball coaches association make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes in the meantime keep up with us on twitter and facebook at ohio bk coaches on instagram at ohsbca 1947 and online at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.